Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, April 19th, and today I'll be speaking with Julia Yaffe for an update on the state of play in Ukraine. The war is starting to fade a little from the headlines here in the United States, but Zelensky and Putin both appear to be doubling down for the long haul. And later on in the show, we'll hear from Tina Wynn about Donald Trump's surprising endorsement of hillbilly elegy author J.D. Vance in the Ohio Senate race. Vance once suggested that Trump might be America's Hitler, his words, but apparently he doesn't think so anymore now that he's in a Republican primary. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I am joined this week by Julia Yaffe, our always-on expert on Russia, Ukraine, all things diplomacy, all things Europe. You were traveling last week, Julia. Uh, You're back now. And I kind of wanted to use this episode because we haven't talked for a few weeks. Uh, And it also feels like the news is sort of covering Ukraine just a little bit less than they were a few weeks Mm -hmm. ago. Just to get a state of play of what's going on over there, uh, one... Has Russia totally abandoned trying to take Kiev? And then two, they're obviously focusing on the east right now. Um, what's the situation there at the moment? Is it just, is that where the war is going to play out moving forward? Yeah, I think that's what it's been forecasted to be for the last couple of weeks when you saw the Russian military move away from Kiev and its environment uh, environs you know, and when they left, we saw, you know, the horror that they had perpetrated and left behind. And the goal there was to focus their forces and their energy on the South, which they were capturing more Mm. quickly and were having far more success in than in the North around Kiev and in the East, which would also comport with what they were originally saying the war was about, right? Mm -hmm. Which was about liberating these astroturf separatist republics in the Donbass. And everybody's been waiting since for this new offensive to begin. And we saw that happen on Monday night on, you know, East Coast time. President Zelensky of Ukraine said that this offensive was beginning and it's going to stretch across a front of 300 miles. And we're also seeing that Western strategy in terms of how to aid Ukraine is is changing because these are going to be very different kinds of battles than, you know, the ones where they're pounding mm-hmm. cities. This is more kind of open terrain. The fighting in the Eastern Front, when you say it's like open terrain, what does that mean? Just like tanks rolling over fields? Is that going to look more like old school conventional warfare? Well, I mean, a lot of this has looked like old school conventional warfare, which is one of the reasons it's been so bloody and uh you know, the airstrikes have been so inexact and why it's been so triggering for people 
in Europe and in especially in, you know, the former Soviet space, because it does look so much like World War II. But, you know, in the, in the East, there's kind of smaller, smaller towns. A lot of them have been evacuated for a long time. It looks like Mariupol is about to fall, but about to fall might mean a week or two weeks. And that would finally secure the land bridge from the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics to Crimea that Russia tried to get originally in 2014, but failed to do because they couldn't take Mariupol. But then I think depending on how this goes uh, and depending on how much territory they're able to take in the east and the south, they might regroup and try to go for Kiev again. Oh, really? You think they might try to do that? Yeah. Once you declare that your stated aim is to fully dismantle Ukraine and erase the very idea of Ukrainianness as a separate political, cultural, historical entity, it's hard to kind of just stop, you know, in the East and the South. Why wouldn't you go for the beating heart of Ukraine? You know, in classic Putin style, they're trying to keep various options open as long as possible and so that anything can be framed as a great and amazing victory. I think, again, depending on how the fight for the East and the South goes, you know, whether they can take Mikolaev or Odessa, you know, if they're able to take that and it's not too painful, then maybe they will try again for Kiev. I think that's totally possible. Then again, if the battle for the East and the South looks like, you know, the first month of the war, then maybe they can then say, well, see, we never intended to. And actually, um, this is a big win. They just, you know, on Monday bombed Lviv, killing a bunch of people, mm-hmm. including teenagers. They haven't given up on Kharkiv. You know, I don't I don't think it's over in Kiev by any stretch. Uh, you spoke last week to one of Zelensky's advisors and aides, Sergei Leschenko, who you've known for a while, <laughs> it seems like. He toured uh, Bucha and Irpin last week. What did that, in his mind, look like in person? And then secondly, like, talking about this potentially long war and this grinding war, like, what did he say Zelensky's state of mind was? According to Sarah, you know, he was clearly in pain seeing everything that he saw at Bucha and Irpin. And Sarah was saying that for Sarah himself, it was just a totally different experience, you know, seeing this stuff on TV and then as he said, standing there with his two feet on this ground where you're standing on pieces of like charred pieces of armored personnel carrier and there's a Russian soldier's boot and all that's in there is like a leg bone sticking out of it. And, you know, being confronted with this fact of even when wars end in victory for one side, you know, even if Ukraine wins this war, whatever, I mean, I'm putting these words in his mouth. This is not what he said. But the sense I got was that so much has been destroyed that even if the war stops tomorrow, Ukraine has lost something horrible, you know, that like tens of thousands of lives, buildings can be rebuilt. You can never rebuild these lives. You can never bring people back from the dead. You can't undo the trauma of women who were raped and the children who saw it and the children, you know, who had their homes bombed Mm -hmm. or saw their parents die. And 
that kind of thing will stay with Ukraine for a long, long time, and it will be deep and abiding. And what also struck me about what he said, that he no longer differentiates between you know, good Russians and bad Russians and the Russian people and Vladimir Putin, the anger and the bitterness is so hot. Mm-hmm. And I totally, totally get it. You know, while I was on vacation last week, very close friend of mine who was used to live in Moscow and fled as soon as the war started was out on one of the last Aeroflot flights out of the country. And talking to him was also very interesting because he was also, you know, he's part of the kind of Russian creative class that has been evicted from their own country. And as he sees it kind of abandoned by the West, but seeing him struggle with the fact that Ukrainians like Serhii will never forgive even him and what it means to be a Russian after your country has done this. Even if you hated Putin, if, even if you went out to every protest, even if you hate this war, how do you as a Russian live with yourself after Bucha and after all of this? And how do you speak to your Ukrainian friends during this and after this? And I, mm-hmm. that really struck me. And the other thing that really struck me about this interview is, um, you know, he was saying that basically pro-American sentiment in Ukraine, which had been very, very high before the war, is ebbing very quickly and turning into anti-American sentiment. Oh, really? Which struck me as like, wait, really? We're sending you so many weapons, so much money. We're doing so much. And he was like, well, we're thinking of all the stuff you're not doing for us. You could be doing a lot more instead of basically telling yourself these fables that a country that can't hold a few suburbs of Kiev is going to start World War III. And that's really been kind of bouncing around my brain since we had that conversation about how this looks from Washington and and the U.S. and how it looks from Kiev, right? Because here we're like, most people are in solidarity with Ukraine. There are Ukrainian flags everywhere. You know, I was in Italy last week. There were Ukrainian flags everywhere there, even in tiny villages in the mountains. And we think we're all doing so much and we're donating money and to like World Central Kitchen and UNICEF and all these places. And the Ukrainians are like, this isn't nearly enough. You're hanging us out to dry. You could end this tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And instead you're doing this, you know, it's what so many of us were afraid of that uh, the West would do what it did in Syria, which was give the anti-Assad rebels just enough to not lose, but not enough to win, which just made the war drag on and on and on for years and made it far bloodier and far more destructive than it would have been otherwise. It's clear that Zelensky seeing Bucha has really ramped up his rhetoric and his willingness to like double down and fight in the East. Mm -hmm. But is it making him also angry at the U.S.? in the West that they're not getting enough? Yeah, I think that's very clear. And you see that in a lot of his appeals, right? And you've seen it basically the whole time in the war where he's, you know, begging the West to close the skies or to provide some kind of support in the air in Ukraine defending its its skies its, itself if the West doesn't want to do that. And I see in Washington some annoyance or some, like they they get it. They're like, yes, it's in his interest to ask for this and to demand this and to put pressure on us publicly. It's not in our interests to do this. And, you know, the Biden administration doesn't feel like it can, you know, hit back publicly and say, you know, chill out. 
and stop mm-hmm. asking for stuff or like be more thankful for what we are giving you because there's absolutely no way that can be said and not be perceived as incredibly insensitive and condescending. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of like trying to be quiet about it publicly while in private, you know, trying to kind of finesse this a little bit and trying to find a balance of how much to help Ukraine. I'm not sure where I personally stand on this because on one hand, when I hear Serhii say, like, there's no way this country is going to start World War III. I mean, they just threatened Sweden and Finland, right? Because they said, we're going to join NATO. We're going to like fast track this. And NATO was like, cool, Mm -hmm. come on in, run inside. (laughs) And Putin was like, I'm going to attack you too. Everybody's like, sure, buddy. You can barely handle Ukraine. So I think Serhii's right on that, but we don't know that Putin won't use a nuclear weapon. In fact, I think that there's still a high, like maybe not a high likelihood, but a higher likelihood that I'm comfortable with. It's a really tough dilemma, I guess. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. I would I would recommend everyone read this uh, piece that she wrote on Puck interviewing um, Zelensky's advisor. Uh, frequently, I don't, I stop myself from pronouncing their names because I'm not good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm calling him Zelensky's advisor, but it gives you a really good glimpse into the the mind's eye of the Ukrainian government at this very moment uh, in a very sort of concise but moving way. And this is why we love Puck because we write things like this. Uh, Julia, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Peter. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Tina Wynn on her beat right now. Thanks, Peter. So last week, we had a couple of bizarre, but not really endorsements coming out of Trump's uh, compound in Mar-a-Lago. First, in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz. He endorsed Oz over Dave McCormick, who is a hedge fund CEO, really kind of considered a financial policy whiz kid during the Bush administration. One would think that he would go for the safer bet of McCormick, but he went with Dr. Oz. And there is a couple of competing theories why. If you're in the McCormick side of the world and you're mad about this, you're going to say, oh, it's because Sean Hannity and Melania really just love Oz and he's a policy lightweight and just a television guy. If you go to the Oz camp, uh, there's actually a competing theory that's not as popular within the GOP, but it does fit the Trump MO, which is Oz is personable. He's good in front of the camera and he is really good at nabbing a very specific demographic of uh, voter that Republicans can't traditionally win, which is suburban women. And going into the general, he's viewed as a much more likely candidate to persuade swing voters especially since the Democrat candidate in the race seems to be Lieutenant Governor Fetterman, who is this like shorts wearing Bernie bro guy with a beard who doesn't seem like a 
traditional-ish kind of dude. I believe he's also described himself as a socialist, but that could also be a GOP talking point waving it. Um, and in Ohio, Trump endorsed J.D. Vance, who is a former Teal Capital manager. He famously wrote Hillbilly Elegy, New York Times bestseller, eventually got adapted into a Netflix movie directed by Ron Howard, of all people. And in 2016, after Trump got elected, the entire mainstream media, liberal coastal elite stereotype of a person glommed onto hillbilly allergy going, oh no, now we can understand why white working class voters went for Donald Trump. And he was considered a bit of a Trump whisperer, even though he publicly criticized Trump. Ever since he started running for Senate in Ohio, he's completely reversed himself on his Trump criticism, has taken a highly nationalist, nativist tack, saying things like, I don't really care about what's happening in Ukraine, for instance. I really just want to focus on domestic issues like the opioid crisis. But J.D. Vance, he's not a candidate that was born or raised in Ohio. And there were four or five candidates that was running in those race that had a party advantage, a geographical advantage. One was Josh Mandel, who's been a Republican politician in the state for quite some time. One was Dave Gibbons, who is a local businessman. One was James Timken, who was a bit more Trumpy and loyal to the base. But Trump made his decision on Vance based on a couple of things. One, he just really wanted to tease everyone and get all the guys to come begging to him. And he thought it was kind of funny. Sad, but true. The second one was he went for the unconventional pick and also pointed out rightly, I think, that the two other candidates, Gibbons and Mandel, had started to humiliate themselves in order to win his vote, primarily during a very notorious Senate debate between the four candidates where Mandel and Gibbons I swear to goodness, got out of their seats and started screaming it at each other's faces. And people in the room were saying there was a possibility that Mandel could have punched Gibbons. And J.D. Vance is sitting there just avoiding any of this. And say what you will about their policy positions and their closeness with the voters of Ohio. Trump has a point. You don't go with the guy who almost punched another dude. That's not becoming of a senator. And even though Trump has always prized manliness and strength, I don't think he has ever stooped to actually enjoying bloodlust and violence that's not inside of an MMA ring. It's a wild race. I'll keep you posted. Back to you, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.